or Santa Claus. All right, all right, we're on, we're on. Welcome everybody. Uh, kind of a different day today. We are in First and Second Corinthians in milk and meat, but we're going to be doing the same in both because um, this is a model I've been uh, working on, and it finally came around, and I think it's time, and I'll explain that. But uh, if you haven't been with us before, we welcome you. We just do deconstructed church. We'll pray. We'll sing the Word of God set to music one set of passages here at live, and then at home you'll get two. And then uh, while that one is playing for you at home, we sit in silence here and reflect upon our direct relationship with God, uh, external of religion, external of uh, demands, uh, just who you are with God. And then we come back and we get into typically our verse by verse, uh, but today it's going to be a little bit different and we'll hope it goes well. So let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, pause this uh, Sunday morning and grateful for life, for the abundant life that we have through uh, your Son who gives it to us by your Spirit. We're grateful, uh, so grateful for the things that you place before us. Often those are trials which we uh, grudgingly have to accept, but we know that through them you're teaching us and you're, you're giving us patience and you're building our character and help teaching us to walk with you uh, and you alone. So we pray that we will um, be sustained by your spirit underneath those trials. And then we will also rejoice and be grateful for the blessings that you pour out on us. And we'll try to be cognizant of your hand in our everyday living. We pray that your spirit will be with those who are seeking to know you personally and to uh, exit this world in a relationship with you that is founded on faith and love. And uh, we just pray that you'll help us to exit from this building a little bit uh, closer to being Christian than when we entered. We pray that the things I say that are stupid and wrong will be forgotten, but the things that are enhanced and supported by your spirit through a contextual analysis of your word will remain with us. Help us to love others, to be Christians to others. And then we, we especially pray for the people who are suffering in the multitudinous ways that we suffer in this life, physically and emotionally and psychologically and with addictions and sin and all the things that easily beset us. We pray for them now. So be with us now as we reflect on your word set to music and we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, welcome back you guys and everybody who is here. Um, August 12th, 2018. So I started a few weeks ago outlining the text for 1 Corinthians 11, uh, which is where we're at in our verse by verse. And I was kind of overwhelmed by something that I want to cover today and push before we push more deeply into our verse by verse of, of 1 Corinthians 11. Much of what Paul starts to talk about now uh, here in chapter 11 is related to things that were important to them in their age. The length of a woman's hair, should she wear a head covering, should men uncover their hair, can men have long hair, uh, are we supposed to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, uh, what to do before you gather together as a bunch of believers, I mean how to actually live these are apostolic directives that we can extract uh, sound principles from, you know, like making sure that you don't do something to offend somebody else. But the actual relationship between women covering their heads, not speaking in church, um, communion, eating meat sacrificed to idols, really has no relationship to us today at all. At all. I mean, right now I'm looking at a bunch of women's heads uncovered. They're all ready and willing to chat away here in church. And we haven't picked up any meat recently that was offered to idols first. So this stuff is very, very appointed to that time. And to go verse by verse through it uh, and spend a lot of time on it, I realized something that, that I think that... Um, we can learn some principles as we go through it, but the deep verse-by-verse -verse study of this stuff in milk, I'm not sure is benefiting us in the best way that it possibly could. So I had to kind of rethink that. And um, so, and I want to base it, I want to base what we cover off a of biblical estimation. I, when someone says, well, I think, but it's not based on a biblical presence, it's really annoying because we all have thoughts about what, what something is or isn't, but if it isn't couched in what we believe is the Word of God and what God wants for us as human beings, if it isn't at least couched in that, our opinions don't mean anything. So, um, before we continue on with our verse-by-verse -verse in uh, 1 Corinthians and discussing about what everybody should or doesn't matter to do, covering heads and speaking in church, I have been kind of driven to present a new heuristic device to you. I've done this in the past. You may or not know that uh, I kind of have a hobby of developing uh, and then tried to implement what are called heuristic devices to aid in the investigation of scripture. Specifically, I use heuristic devices to help summarize large amounts of biblical data down into a workable theme and then uh, it allows people to take that theme and test it by scripture to see if it holds water. And if that theme can be summarized down into a workable model, then it's a, it's a very beneficial thing. 
and uh, some of my earlier heuristic devices I've had tattooed on my actual body. Uh, the Star of David, I believe, is a heuristic device. Uh, I have a Z here on my arm. The X I use as a heuristic device. So when I'm sitting in a public place and someone starts talking about certain concepts, I'm able to refer to the heuristic devices and use them as a teaching tool. That's all they are as a teaching tool. So today I want to apply what I believe is a biblically supported heuristic device to illustrate and introduce for you a comprehensive view of our wonderful faith, start to finish, um, with the hope of giving you and myself more understanding on how to love others, not how to divide from others, but how to love them and see them as they incorporate Christ into their life. And let me make this clear. This is a method to help people live their faith according to the dictates of their own conscience. And you're going to see by the time we're done that everybody will sort of either be in one camp or another, or they will straddle some camps. But it's going to allow you from a biblical presentation to understand what those camps are and where people are when you meet them. When you meet a Calvinist, when you meet um, a Messianic Jew, when you meet a Mormon. You're going to be able to use this heuristic device to be able to sort of assess this is where they are. So before I really get into it, I want to go to the board. I've written uh, out what other people have said or how they've described what a heuristic device is. Any procedure which involves the use of an artificial construct, which I'm going to introduce to you, to assist in the exploration of a phenomena. Uh, it usually involves assumptions derived from empirical research. So you guys who know me know that for 30 years I sit in public places every morning from 5 to 11 and I read and I study and that's how I come up with my comprehensive view, faulty as they might be. And so that's my empirical research and so I've made assumptions derived from the empirical research to come up with the model I'm going to share with you now. Uh, Second thing, preliminary analysis, this isn't exhaustive, for analytical clarity. And then third, may possess explan uh, explanatory value as a model. And that's my hope, is that this will possess some explanatory value for you as a model. Excuse me, audience at home. Mallory, will you erase that for me? My Vanna White. Yeah, right, yeah. Thanks. If you use that, it's, yeah. Okay. So, um, in our verse-by-verse -verse study of the New Testament, I've not felt the need in milk to introduce to you guys a heuristic because we've been covering historical books or the Gospels. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling us a narrative and a story, and so there's really not that much of a need for, to create one. And Acts, which we went through verse-by-verse, -verse, is a historical book. Revelation doesn't really require one for me, so we haven't put, come to a place that we need one. But now we're in the uh, epistles, and now we're getting apostles giving directives to the church at that time. And we are faced with deciding, do we believe the Bible completely? Here Paul says women should keep silent in church. They should have their head covered. Should we believe this? And if we don't believe it, 
How do we justify not believing it because it's in the Bible? Where do we just say, well, that's just my opinion. Women have the right to speak, but an apostle saying they don't. So, and who gets to decide what is kept and what isn't? And the, this discussion opens us up, as you know, if you've been to campus, to thousands of different denominations who are all saying this is this and this is that. So this heuristic device hopefully will help you understand where people are and what their worldview is of the faith. And then you can decide where you are. And that's the subjective freedom you have. So you can be at any part of this model, in my estimation, and be welcome here. I don't know if that would be the same cases as the places, but nevertheless. So as a means to illustrate this view to our milk audience and our meat audience, before we continue, let's go to the heuristic that I am calling, the, and it sounds really fancy, but it's the tri-binary model of Christian praxis. Now, it sounds kind of fancy. I didn't mean you to erase that, but... <laughs> I'll just put uh, the tri-binary model of Christian praxis. Now, it's not that, it's not that difficult. Um, binary, binary means two, right? We know that, two. Computers, uh, a computer language, one of them is called binary language. It consists of ones and zeros. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a tri-binary three two symbol model, three two symbol model that will help explain Christian praxis. And praxis is just a big word for how we do our faith. So it's a tri two part model, three two part model of how people do the Christian faith. And I'm going to do it by walking us through the biblical history, the biblical narrative. And as we walk through it, we're, we're going to create this model together. And by the time we get to the end of it, I hope you'll have a working knowledge of, of how, how you can use the model to understand where you are and where other people are. Okay, so uh, three main ways that people read the Bible and interpret it in their Christian walk. Okay, number one, and this... This, I'm just going to number them here, and this is creation. This area is called creation. And um, it begins with love. God, he expresses something into existence on our behalf, and he creates it through words. In Genesis, we read that God said, and it was. God said, let there be light and there was light. God said, God spoke, God did things through words. He spoke them into existence. And heaven and earth were created by God saying, by God speaking things into existence. Remember, he created a garden of Eden and we have the parameters of where that garden was created. It's between four rivers and areas. So just remember that he created a garden to put man in, but there was an outside of that garden. Now always try to keep that in mind. We always focus on the garden and act as if the whole world was the garden. That's not the case. He created a garden and Genesis gives us the boundaries of that garden are between rivers that are actually still in that part of the world. So it was in that area that God created a beautiful garden 
for the, with the animals and with Adam and Eve. Always remember that though there was that special place that we start with, there were places outside of that. What, was, what were in those places, I have no idea. Maybe that was dinosaur land. May, who knows? I mean, the conjecture goes on and on and on, but we know that the Garden of Eden was within a specific place. Now, he creates Adam, his name mean, means red. He creates Adam out of the dust of the earth, and he gives Adam, he breathes into him, his pneuma, he breathes into that clay, the breath of life, and Adam becomes a living suke, a living soul. And he tells Adam, you have dominion over everything. So we have God having dominion over everything above and everything below, but we have Adam having a second dominion over everything under his feet, everything that was in the garden. And he also takes Eve from his side and he makes woman and they were one. They were from the same body. They were one. That was the marriage. And we've talked about those concepts before. I won't go into it here. He also puts a tree in there. And people say, why put a tree? Because this is fundamental to the faith, you guys. The purpose of the tree was to give Adam and Eve freedom to choose to love and seek God or not. That's all it was. I mean, they could never prove that they didn't want to seek God or wouldn't follow God if there wasn't an opportunity not to do it. So he introduces a tree and he says, listen, you, can, you have dominion over everything, do everything you want, but that tree, don't eat of it because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. So he, what he does is he gives Adam and Eve an opportunity to make a choice. Now there's all sorts of things about, well, they were dumb and they didn't have an ability and they didn't know good from evil. But I'll tell you this much, Adam named all the animals and Adam certainly had an intellect and Adam was made in God's image and, and God said, Adam is good. So I don't think Adam was dumb and I don't think Eve were dumb. I think they simply were given this choice. They may not have understood the ramifications of it, but there was a choice given, okay? So here's the tree, and it's all based on choosing God with your free will or not, all right? This comes to the first part of our model, and we're going to call this number two, and this is the fall. And I draw a line between creation to start this off because something occurs here in this fall Given a choice to believe and love God, we don't know how to multiply and replenish the earth, God. You're walking with us in the cool of the day. How do we do that? Well, this is how you do it. Whoa, we were wondering what that was all about. Uh, look at the animals. You know how to multiply and replenish. Have a relationship with me, Adam and Eve, or choose to do things your own way. This is the basis of all human life in relationship to God. So choose to do it your own way. And there was a willful rebellion against, that, against God where Eve essentially said, I really don't understand. I've been tricked. I'm going to eat of it. Adam said, I understand and I'm going to eat of it anyway. The woman you gave me, she ate of it. I'm going to do it. Adam's was willful. Eve was, tempt Eve, Eve was tricked according to Paul. So Eve takes it, but both of them are essentially saying, I want what I want. 
I'm going to do what I will do. That's the Luciferian credo. Do what thou wilt. And so they said, I'm going to do it my way. My way is better than your way, God. And so they made the choice and they partook of the fruit. Notice that the propensity to do evil in Eve and in Adam was within them before there was a fall. That Eve was able to make decisions on her own and so were Adam before they partook of the fruit. So there is an ability within humankind to make a choice and to do it wrongly and to do it rightly. God gave them the choice. There's this myth out there within Christianity and other sects of the faith that are like, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how to do it. They didn't really, they knew. Because Eve made decisions and so did Adam based off their own intellect, how they were created to go against the uh, advice that God had given them. So they eat of the tree and there's a fall. And um, the biblical present age begins. So now we have the fall and I'm going to give you the first This is the first binary piece of, it's really what we would call the Old Testament. This, from this fall, we get the beginning. Now we have a Noah here and we get on, but then we get to the place where God is going to. He said, I started with Adam and Eve and that's not going to work because they chose, I'm not going to follow you with my, our will. They could have broadened out in the garden. They could have done all sorts of things with God. He, God knew all this. He, did, he knew it was going to happen. But Adam and Eve, one-on-one, -on -one aren't going to work. So let me go to building a nation. And the nation began with uh, Abraham. Okay, we're going to go number three. And we're going to call this the, uh, what do I call this in here? The children of Israel. It begins with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the nation of Israel or the children of Israel. And God says to them through Moses, okay, I'm going to give you laws and I'm going to give you a temple and I'm going to give you rituals and I'm going to give you commandments and I'm going to give you prophets. And if you obey my laws and you go to the temple and you offer ritualistic sacrifices of animals and you obey my commands and you listen to my prophets, I will bless you. You will have an abund abundance of material success and blessings. You won't be wiped out by your enemies. I will be your God. You will be my people. And so we enter into that God's nation First, externally, just use this word to understand the children of Israel. Material, external. Okay? Because everything with that relationship was external. It's very much like the LDS have incorporated these ways into their religion. It's material blessings, it's, ex it's external stuff. The spiritual does not play nearly the role it could in the faith having been there. But the material, the focus is huge. And you can see why. They have many of the same things involved in their approach to God. Okay? So they had the external law given by Moses. They had external prophets. You could actually taste, taste, touch, and see, and hold, and hear. 
and they had a scripture that was written in stone and they had all this stuff up there around them. They had a temple with external rites, with external blood being covered on an external altar. And they had the promise of an actual material external Messiah. They had promises dating all the way back to Genesis. You're going to have a Messiah that is going to come and he is going to save you from all the trials that you're put under and all the bondage and everything else. A promise of the nation of Israel. They had an anticipation of something beyond this. Now, just to let you know, the Jews called this the present age. When a Jew was alive living under these things, it was known to them as the present age. One thing that they knew is there was an age to come. That would be the age when the Messiah would come in, introduce the kingdom, and, then, and the nation of Israel would be completely transformed by this, they believe, strong, physical, external, material Messiah to lead them against their enemies, take them out of bondage to Rome, etc., etc. Okay, that is the first binary model of biblical language. There it is. Now you can ask yourself, are there people who still follow this? We know the Jews still follow this. We know Muslims in part still follow this with all these things. We know the LDS in part follow this. Okay, so this is a model that is present in the Bible that people will look to and say this is part of Christianity. And when you meet someone who is still in this phase, you can't hate them, you can't fight them, you don't want to go against them. They have a love for God, they're seeking God, they just haven't moved to the next thing. So they're still hung up in, in the first binary model. Okay, first, I call it the first 10 because it looks like a 10, right? Okay, it's the language of the Jew and the Muslim and appeals to some Christians too. And at this point, we're introduced to the most miraculous uh, whole part of this nation. They brought something most miraculous forward and they brought, this nation brought it forward at a time when there was still part of this age to go. And his name was Jesus. And so we have Jesus born still in the Old Testament model period, right? Now, we often lose that and we think, no, he starts the New Testament. Not true. He came in in the fullness of time where there's still law and prophets. He came into his own. He came into Jerusalem. All the things that were of that age and time were Jesus' time. When he talks to his apostles in the Gospels, he is not talking to us. He is talking to them. When he tells them to be perfect, even as his Father in heaven is perfect, and you use that for you today, that is an inappropriate, anachronistic application of Jesus' words to others today because they were to them. He said them to them. So his teachings were all to this group, the children of Israel. In fact, he himself said, I didn't even come for anybody else. 
I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He told his apostles, go out into all of Judea. Don't go to Samaria or any other Gentile part. Only go to the house of Israel. So Jesus comes along and he was God's word. Remember, God created everything, everything by his mouth. He said, and it was, he said, as it was. So we have scriptures that say Jesus created everything. Why? Jesus is the word made flesh. God's words made flesh. That is how God created everything. So God creates everything in creation by saying it, and it was, let there be light, and there was. And then when Jesus takes flesh, his word made flesh, he becomes the one who is said in scripture to have created everything. Still with me? So this was the institution of the age to come. This was also the beginning. Jesus was the beginning of the end of this age. And that's why he was born toward the end of it. He was going to bring about its destruction of that age. God so loved the world, he gave us life and creation. God so loved the world, he gave us his only begotten, his only human son. That's how much God loved this creation that had fallen into total disrepair and total evil. This nation failed in these things. They had turned from God altogether, were put in captivity. They failed like Adam and Eve failed. So God said, okay, the nation isn't going to do it. I can't lead them through laws. I can't lead them through rituals and through the temple and through animals. Okay, I'm going to give them, and he always knew this, I'm going to give them my only human son. I am going to have my words become flesh, and he's going to walk around on that earth, and he's going to do something. He's going to save it. He loved his creation so much, he sent his only human son to come and do it. When John the Baptist came as a precursor to Jesus' ministry, he's the last of the prophets. He's the last of, of the law. And Jesus says he's the last of the prophets. He comes, and what does he do? He comes baptizing with water. What is that? It's an external rite. It's an external ritual. He came doing something that was part of this covenant, part of this age. They were totally big on water ablutions. So John the Baptist comes and he says, I'll baptize you guys who are of this house unto repentance and preparation for the Messiah to come. But let me tell you something he says. That dude, I don't, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoe. That's what he's like. And he's going to come baptizing with, now here's the key. John the Baptist came baptizing with water. He comes baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's a different baptism, you guys. He's introducing here a different kind of conversion, a different kind of baptism. And he does it within the context of this age still, right? So the Son of Man baptizing with fire and water, his physical life, he fulfills perfectly all the tenants over here, every single thing, he lives it perfectly. There's no sin in him. He fulfills the law. His miracles were prophesied over here that the that Messiah that was promised to come, he would fulfill 
everything through miracles. He did the miracles. That's why we read about them in the New Testament that so many higher critics of, of Christianity mock today. They say, oh, miracles, right, right. I don't believe he did the miracles. That's because they, they are ignorant to the reason he did miracles and the 1,500 years of prophecy that said the Messiah would do miracles to show that he was the one. So he comes and he's doing the miracles and his death was um, to typify the death of the former covenant and his blood was to uh, cleanse the world of sin and because his blood was innocent. He's the only one who didn't deserve to die and if they hadn't killed him, he wouldn't have died. There was no sin in him. We die because of death. The wages of sin is death. So he wouldn't have died but he gave his life up and he died for the sin of the world. Then he resurrects as evidence of overcoming everything and promises to return with judgment and reward. He says, I'm coming back with judgment and reward. All right. And he trained 12 men to be his apostles and to go out into all of Judea initially and teach he's the Messiah who is resurrected and he's coming back with judgment and reward get ready be saved from what's headed your way that was their message all of them warning and growing with anticipation of his return the message was listen closely his message to the house of Israel was receive me and be saved from what? Be saved from Sheol, hell, the place after this life that you will be miserable in if you haven't received me. Escape Sheol and escape the coming judgment that's going to fall upon the nation of Israel. When the scripture teaches about being saved from an apostle's mouth to a Jew or a Gentile in that age, it's escape Sheol, be saved from hell, go to paradise and be saved from the coming wrath. That's the context of it. Believe it or not, we read it today, we see saved, we think it means saved to heaven and has nothing to do with any of those things. But contextually, when they said, believe on Jesus and be saved, it would be saved from Sheol because your sins are covered. You'll go to paradise like, like the thief on the cross and be saved from the coming destruction if you're living during that time. That was their message. This introduces us, Jesus' birth introduces us to the, what the Jews called the age to come. All right, here's the second zero of the binary language and we have 110 here and we have 110 right here. Now that's a bad zero, but it is a zero nonetheless. We have another 10 right here. That's the three-part binary model. What is this space right here? Jesus is born. The old covenant is still going on. The new covenant is beginning here. What is this space in the, and right in here? This is the New Testament. It's the New Testament. That's where everything happens that we read about from Matthew to Revelation. We might consider the time intersecting between the former age and the age to come as the second binary set. And it's just this little 
Jesus' birth to this point right here. And it's another way to understand Christianity. I am a New Testament Christian. Within that segment of Christianity, we have people who say, I only read the red letters of the New Testament. We have people say, I only read Paul. There's a very popular pastor who says, we don't even read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and, and some of Acts. We only read Paul, because reading Paul is what we've written to Gentiles. So that's what our New Testament is. There are people who say that. There are Christians who say, well, I read both the New Testament and the Old, and that's the kind of Christian I am. So within the New Testament period or space of time between this age and that age, we have people who are New Testament only, New Testament and Old Testament. And then there are people who are Old Testament only over here, which we already discussed. What kind of Christian are you? Most Christians today who consider themselves conservative and down the road consider themselves New and Old Testament, or they'll consider themselves New Testament, but they're always right here in that gap between the intersecting new old age and the, and the new age to come. And it's right there when the apostles were alive. And that's the kind of Christian I am. And the church I go to, my pastor tells us that, you know, women shouldn't talk too much in church. And it would be a good idea if they covered their heads. And, you know, they, because they're taking the New Testament context and they're applying it to themselves and saying this is what the faith is. Both worlds, you know what's happening right here, you guys? What's happening when we get this world and we get that one? Launched by Christ, still hasn't ended yet. That is a confluence of conflict. This is tribulation. This is radical warfare. This is when the end of the age was happening. This was when the signs in the sky, this was when people were being put to death. This is when a guy named Nero shows up and starts persecuting right here in that age of the two ages coming together is the conflict that people are still reading the Bible about and saying it's coming in our future. It happened right here. And that's why all the apostles' words and Jesus' words are telling them, do this, cling together, don't eat the meat of idols, women be quiet. That's not a cultural, ex culturally accepted thing in our church today. Do this. We're apostles to keep you together because the whole thing is you are under the biggest pressure you've ever been, right? And so Sheol, these things which were realities in the Old Testament. Now remember, hell, a reality in the Old Testament. Satan, a reality in the Old Testament. Sheol, the covered place, which is translated hell for us, a reality in the Old Testament. All those things still reality. Separation from God, still a reality. Separation from God because of the fall. Still a reality here and still a reality here in part, just keep going with me. And this period was the tribulation and wrap up of the end of this age right here. So I'm going to draw the next line. And this creates the final binary model, this and that. That is the end of the age. And when the end of this age comes, we launch out into that final age. All right. The book of Revelation and Jesus' words in Matthew uh, all speak, and you guys know this because it's something we touch on constantly. When they say world in the King James, they are talking about the end of this age coming.
and coming quickly. Jesus said, within a generation, 40 years, span of time. The apostles said, soon, quickly, it's coming, end of this age, okay? Paul said, everything about this age, everything has to fall, has to go away before this age can come in to play before it can come into play fully. Everything has to fall. Okay, and he's talking about the temple, and he's talking about priesthood, and he's talking about the law. All of the things of this former age have to come down, Paul said, before we can enter into the age to come, the second age that the Jews talked about. So this was the period when Jesus sent his apostles out, and he said, listen, go out and preach to them this coming end of age at this period and tell them and what we have here is the New Testament content these are what our books in the New Testament are all addressing that believers in that time who look to Jesus to the such detriment we can have somebody come to Jesus today and there, it doesn't mean anything really I mean in Utah it could or Idaho or parts of Washington or California might have something. You embrace uh, Jesus and you're not LDS, you know, you could have some pressure. But if you were living in this age, an age where these things were expected, and Jesus came and said, I'm the Messiah and I've saved you from it, and you embraced it, it meant poverty, it meant torture, and it meant death. That's what it meant. It was a putting your page up in living color in the post every post office in town you were no longer part of that Jewish community you were anathema to them you had become a follower of Jesus and you were gonna suffer and that is why so many of the epistles and revelation talk about the suffering of the Saints our suffering today we apply it I know it can't compare to the suffering that they went through in this short little period for the New Testament Christians, all right? Paul said all that was gonna fall. This is the period that Jesus was, and I'm just gonna use our space over here. He was, I'm gonna use the word culling. He was culling from the nation of Israel and from Gentiles, those who were his. He was getting those who would be faithful. And through suffering and trial, they were becoming a huge word in Scripture for Jesus to come back and, and take and save and rescue. They were becoming... Does anyone want to try to shout out what they were becoming? This group was becoming his bride. And he was going to come back and take her. Now, you remember we go back to creation. Adam was given a bride from his side. And from those two came the whole nation of Israel and the rest of the world as we know it, right? Well, Jesus is called the second Adam. And the second Adam is getting, calling his bride from the faithful saints in the New Testament narrative that the apostles are over and telling them to hang in there. And he is saying, okay, you be my people. I'll be your God. I will come, everything will be okay, trust in me, hang on, don't fall away, don't go to paganism, don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols because it'll make you have sex with the temple uh, prostitutes and all the stuff we've covered in here. 
Stay with me on this because you're going to be my bride. And he said, I will come within a generation. And he said, some of you standing here will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And he said to the apostles, you won't get to all of Judea before I come back. I promise you, you will not touch every city in Judea before I come back. And he comes back and he takes his bride. And he saves them from Sheol and he saves them from the coming destruction where 1,100,000 Jews, Gentiles, all over Judea, especially Jerusalem, are slaughtered with this, the most horrific slaughter imaginable. All right? So, those words in the New Testament were for them. He promised his return. That's that former age. And this brings us finally, can I have that paper towel? No. This brings us finally into, okay, if that's the case, and we get to this point, so we have another time where Jesus came in at the end of this age here and is born and introduces the New Testament, but he also introduced the coming of the new age. Now we have, again, the end of the former age happening right at the beginning of this. This final age, the seventh part of it, is the age to come, the new aeon, or E-I-O-E-O-N, the new age. And I hate to say new age because it's such a derogatory term, but it's the new aeon, new aeon. All things, with my pen, all things fulfilled. Two L's. In Christ. He has had the victory. He, uh, there is no more sin that you're going in and repenting and doing all the things that are talked about here. There are no more laws or cultural practices that were going on here or here for those who live in this new age. This is an age where we read the scripture and we pull out the spiritual application to ourselves and we live in complete and total unconditional love. Now people freak on that. I'm telling you, he has done, God has done everything through this model that by the time he came and rewarded and destroyed everything of that former age, if you read the passages and there's about 14 of them that describe this age in the New Testament, it is about his reign of love. And that we look to every single person in love. We receive them with open arms as beneficiaries of the knowledge of this age. All things fulfilled through Christ, through his victory over sin. It's too radical for people. He's had a victory over sin. He's had a victory over death. He's had a victory over uh, the grave. He's had a victory of Old Testament Satan cast in the lake of fire. Who's doing all the evil today? People. Just like Adam and Eve were able to be evil from the beginning, we're doing our own evil. James says, this is how a person, this is how a man falls into uh, sin. He first wants to do it and then he lets himself do it. James says nothing about Satan coming in and causing us to do it. Satan had a role here and here 
and his time, he was as a roaring lion here to wipe out that bride if he could. Satan had his role, but Revelation tells us in the new age, he's gone. He's been cast away. We're now responsible for the evil we do. We're completely capable of doing it. And we will reap what we sow in that way. Not in terms of punishment. Sheol, hell, has been cast in too. We all will receive, will reap what we sow. Sow to the spirit, you'll reap in the spirit. Sow to the flesh. We sang that uh, as we started off. I didn't choose that song. That you sow to the spirit, you reap in the spirit. Sow to the flesh, you reap in the flesh. So if you want to build a kingdom here on earth in this world, and that's where your focus is, and you don't care about the spiritual things, Jesus has had the victory for you. He's overcome sin and death. You will be resurrected. You will go and you will live in a place beyond here. Hell is gone. That's that segment. And that's that segment. We are in that new age. All things God says in Hebrews, I am going, he says one more time, I'm going to take everything of the former age. And he says, I'm going to shake it. And he says, I'm going to shake it so badly in heaven and on earth that the only thing that can remain from my shaking everything, one more time, he says, are things that can't be shaken. And to me, that is a clear indication of moving from the external and the material to the spiritual, to the completely spiritual age. Yes, we live in this world. Yes, we have to have jobs and pay our bills. And yes, we have urges and desires as human beings. God loved us so much, he gave us a solution to that. His son, not ourselves. There are people who say, no, it's his son plus me. They're living right here in the New Testament age. They read the New Testament. It's his son plus me to get to God. There are those who say, yeah, the son's not that important. It's just me. They're living in this age. I can do it by laws and ordinances and rituals. And then there are people who say, it's him, he's done it. So when I meet the pedophilia, lesbian, homeless, AIDS-ridden beggar, I'm going to love them like I love my own sister at the house. You love unconditionally as a person who lives in this age, this last tenth. And you live as Jesus it lived. And it's the most difficult thing to do. But it's by this love that, that God, Jesus says, people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love one to another. And that love is defined by that New Testament that we look to for models of spirituality by being selfless and being kind and being patient and long-suffering and all the things that are so antithetical to our flesh. Our flesh still lives in this realm, but the model for us is not this age. That was for a specific time, and it's not, certainly not this. This stuff just creates hatred. This stuff creates laws and exclusion and division. It's here where all things have been fulfilled in Christ. So the question to ask yourself is, I say I'm a Christian, what kind of Christian am I? Do I live in from the end of the age this way? Do I live from this point in Jesus to the New Testament? Or am I going all the way back here and just living right like that? You can decide where you are and how you've defined your Christianity. But I would suggest to you with all my heart 
that if you want to walk it the way it's laid out, from what I can tell in Scripture, the first 10, the, New Te the Old Testament, will only cause you to judge others, hate others, um, hate yourself, become mean, and fail like the children of Israel did on it, under it. If you live this one, the New Testament, either just the new or the new and the old combined, you're still going to use that book as a book of rules and laws. And we've given the example here before, and I'm going to kill you with it one more time. But here at campus, we have absolutely no rules at all. Except the only one that has to do with like physical building. You got to talk to me if you want to use it or not. So scheduling. It's really and clean up those two things. But let's say today, and I'm sorry, guys, I'm introducing the sock rule. You come to campus, one rule, you got to wear socks. If you don't wear socks, you cannot come to campus. That is any kind of law in religion, Old Testament or New Testament. Women must not speak in church. Women must cover their hair. You can't eat this meat. Uh, widows must do this. Whatever it is, you must repent of your sin before you can be, whatever the rule is, whether from this area or this area, ours is you must wear socks. Okay? This is exactly what will happen at the campus church. Some will choose to wear socks, and there will be some who don't. And they will be the rebels. And the rebels will think of themselves as free in Christ. And they'll look at the people wearing socks as being part of the old covenant. And they'll be factioning. And the people who wear socks will say, I'm obedient. Therefore, God loves me more than you sockless people. Women are going to start sewing jewels into their socks. So they look nicer than other women's socks. Guys will start wearing argyles. There'll be a black sock club. There'll be a white sock club. We will break up over one rule within 50 years beyond recognition on the one rule of, no, of you must wear socks. God said, let me tell you what this age looks like. I will write my laws into your mind and in your heart. Do you know what that means? That means we read these words in the Bible to learn principles but not as laws. We are lovers, not lawyers. And so we read the principles and we let the spirit of love move us into implementing those uh, uh, principles that we discover. But God says, I will write my uh, laws on your mind and in your heart and all men will know that I am God. He writes them internally. That's called conscience. That's called the spirit within us that knows when someone cuts us off to flip them off is not in harmony with what God has written. We don't need to read it. We don't need our pastor in the next car saying, it's in you because Christ has had the victory over all things. That makes us responsible individually before God. And if we are individually responsible before God, if we die and your pastor or an apostle is not standing next to you, if you are individually responsible before God, then the faith is entirely subjective. 
that God in you, the individual, tells you how you must follow him and he knows the desires of your heart and you will follow him or you will rebel and say, I'm going to go my own way on this one. That's how it works. And if you clear the decks of all this other stuff, you wind up in a place of utter transformative freedom and utter terror. Because you know that God is talking and working with you and you're relying on him alone. And people don't freaking want that. They want their pastor to tell them, this is what this passage means in Paul when it comes to eating. This is what this means here. You must apply it that way. This is what we do here. It's through a law and a rule and a law and a rule. They love that because they can say, wave the white flag. I don't want to be free. I just want to, you know, my pastor to tell me I belong to this denom. I've done their baptism. I take their communion every Sunday. I've done this right, this ritual. I've followed the word. I've even read the word every day. And I've done it right. God can't keep me out. No, no, it doesn't work that way. He's finished it. It's all here. So first 10, the Old Testament, second 10, the New Testament, the third 10, the new eon, the new age established at the end of that age. Heavenly inhabitants are described in two ways in this age. Did you know this? We're now out here. Mallory, come back up here and help me. Redraw this and erase all this and just redraw it for me. You can do, just draw the tens. Okay, you can do it. Okay? In the new age described in Revelation, it's described as a new Jerusalem with city gates around it that are open day and night. God and Jesus dwelling in it and his, his believers are there inside and outside the city gates. That's all it teaches. It says outside are the abominable ones, the ones who don't hate. They, they love a lie. They love this. They love adultery. They love this. And they're outside the city gates. It talks nothing of a hell. It talks nothing of a lake of fire. It talks nothing of screaming and pain. It talks about in the city gates and outside the city gates. I propose to you that in this new age, that is the destination of all people since 70 AD destruction of the former economy. I would suggest to you that we are living in that new aeon of time and that there are people who want nothing to do with being in the new Jerusalem, which is heavenly, after this life. God gives them what they want. They go to the external side. But the gates are open day and night for anyone who wants to enter in. And they probably have to enter in by knees bowing, tongue confessing Jesus is Christ and a change of heart and mind. But that's how the, that this future age is described. I'm not making it up. It's not my opinion, that's what it says. So the world is broken up into those who freely choose to be his, and that's you and me, and those who freely choose not to be his, to not to hear his call, which he's calling to all. He calls to all, he's paved the way for all, the price has been paid for all, none are under God's condemnation. Some idiot just said online that the fires that we're having are God's punishment for homosexuality. California has been on fire every day since I've been a kid. The place lights up every year almost. Come on, man. He is not angry. His son did it. It's done. He loves us. He's working to reach us. He has provided a way for us. He has saved us. The only thing he can't save us from is ourselves if we don't want him. And if we don't, that's our choice. So to the Spirit reap to the spirit, sow to the flesh, reap to the flesh. Um, hereafter there waits only spiritual poverty, 
for those who didn't care about spiritual things, and hereafter uh, lays a spiritual kingdom for those who did. And it's going to be a kingdom not based in material things, but a kingdom of humility and love and kindness. That is what the kingdom operates by. Okay, one really quick thing. How much time have we gone? And as a quick note, there are 19 dozen bagels in the back. One pack of bagel for everybody, the second law. Now there's old joke here. How much, how much time? Okay, let me quickly point something out to you, one more thing. Hey, you did it without, very good. Okay, I wanna just, I just wanna show you one more thing that's really cool about this heuristic. And that is, we apply it, we just applied it all here to the Bible, right? Well, I want to take the same principles here and apply it to the individual. And just as we wrap this up, how do you spell individual? As you wrap this up, let's just use this line to say this is how it applies to the biblical model of creation, the fall, Old Testament, Jesus' birth, uh, uh, New Testament economy, second coming, wrapping up that age, and the new world. There's seven points there. So what are the seven points heuristic for an individual? And they just parallel really well, and so I just want to share them with you. First of all, number one, we have all been created by our parents. Uh, egg and sperm, and we are born into this world as natural creatures. So we have a creation period, all of us. Same thing. And as scripture says, we're born into this world as natural creatures. We're born into it, but we haven't sinned. All of us know that it doesn't take long for our sin nature, I want, my will, I'll do it my way, to crop up in our lives. Now some it might be, you know, when they're two or three or four, there might be perfect children, I don't know, I was never one of them. Some it's just from the day they start screaming. They are recalcitrant and rebellious and angry. They come in and they experience their fall right away, right? So we all are born, we have a creation, we all enter a fall, and when we enter into that fall, by as created beings, we enter into our Old Testament phase. And that's when our parents say, you know, I want to introduce you to religion, son. Let me take you to primary. Let me take you to Bible study camp. Let, let's let religion and their rules and laws and ways have an effect upon this rebellious, fallen creature that you are. And if it's not religion, then it might be scouting, or it might be boot camp, or it might be sports. It's going to be some institution, this is the institutional era of the individual, that tells you we're going to reform you, because the way you naturally came into this world and your fallen nature really is reprehensible. Okay? Now, internally, if we're honest, so we've gone to create, we've been created, we've fallen, and then we're trying to be institutionalized by our parents to conform, right? We all come to the point, this is Jesus' birth in the, in the model, we all come to the point where we want a savior. We want a savior. I mean, we don't know it's Jesus, maybe. Some people come to discover it's Jesus at an early age. But if we're really introspective, we want the birth of something that will fix the hollow. In, our, in ourselves. And we seek something to save us from our inward rebelliousness that's a product of our natural birth. And we really don't know. We go to religion, we go to art, 
We go to education, we go to violence, we go to crime, we go to all that. We hate what's in our heart, but we adore ourselves. And we're at this conflict personally. And at this point, we might discover the true solution, which is Jesus. And this is when we are reborn. Born again, born from above. People who become Christ. The model is the same for the individual as it is for the biblical uh, a narrative. And we are reborn. And what happens when we first come to know Christ outside of institutional rule and reign? We enter in this phase when we come to know Christ. We just call it the New Testament phase. We start going to churches. And we move in to the New Testament era of our Christian faith. Many, many, many people stay at the institutional level of their life. I was born a Catholic, I'll die a Catholic. I go to Mass every Saturday. That is where they are. Some move into Christ Jesus and have the experience and they move right into this model. I follow that New Testament, you know, and we got to do this and you got to understand that and okay, we're following it. And they stay in that model because that, they can't go beyond. It, for whatever reason, they won't go beyond. And it's fine. You enter with a, a relationship with God. That's the thing. You're entering into heaven. You're in, the, you're in the New Jerusalem here, right? That's Jesus. But the question is, is this where Jesus wants people to stay? And I would suggest no. And I would suggest that when we stay here, we are not seeking God in spirit and in truth. We are, we are being maybe lazy, maybe fearful, maybe unsure, not wanting to let go, but something is keeping us either here or here, and some of us even just in the fallen natural state, right? The question is when you get to that point and you've entered the relationship with God, are you going to let others and what was established in the Old, in the old uh, New Testament by apostles for them in that time continue to guide you and force you into these models that they have without any merit applied to themselves today? I'll go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Any uh, apologist, theologian on earth, they cannot show one passage from the New Testament or old that says they have the right to take it and apply it to people in their church today. Not one. They do all day long, but they can't do it. Why? God didn't intend it that way. He intended for everything to become, to be over with. And for us to move, yes, we, when we're children, we go to church and we come to know Jesus, we learn about the New Testament. It's a, it's a pro progress happening to us, right? But there should come a time when you say, after seeking and searching and holding fast to him and uh, looking at everything that the religion has taught me, um, I want to enter into the New Jerusalem. I want to be someone who spirit is akin to God's God and God is love. And, and so in order to do that, you can't sit in the church you can't sit in the institutions. You can't sit into movements. You have to say, I am going to choose to follow Jesus. And where that leads you, and this is the tough part, is it leads you into this new age, uh, new uh, aeon, 
And just like Jesus, he was led out and led out and led out to the point where he was outside the city gates as a derelict. He was naked. He was beaten. He was alone. And that is where he gave up his life completely. Carpenter's son, uh, wine-bibber, glutton, all that gone. Apostles deserted him. He said, I'm not going to hover in these institutional realms. I'm going to move out to the place where God dwells. And that is a place of total, unconditional, selfless love. When you make that move, you will find yourselves not able to remain in the conversation with people who are here and especially here and here, fallen. You can't. It's too tough. It's too much dogma. It's too much rhetoric. It's too many rules. God is leading you. So I would just summarize all of this and wrapping it up. Mallory, erase just this part right here. Sorry to have you up and down like that. To remain in that first binary is to remain under the law. To go into the second binary and remain is to remain under an apostolic church led by men that no longer exists and was there for a purpose. To remain in that, that is what you're doing. God is going to be happy, I think, with you, whatever your choices are. He loves you. Jesus has paid the price for you. So if you want to remain here, you can. You want to go there, you can. But to transcend into the third binary is to experience his second advent in your heart, so to speak. And the heavenly kingdom, you become part of it here and now. Revelation says that the new Jerusalem is here and there. You become part of that citizenship here and now. There's no memberships. There's no dress codes. There's no fee. There's no lifestyle. There's no dietary things. There is no membership. It is a spiritual kingdom that you are part of. And in that you find tremendous emancipation from all religion, which is what God wants. So to wrap that up, finally, a final few points. We have Jews, Muslims, maybe some Mormons uh, here in that old covenant way. We have Messianic Jews who are here, Messianic Jews. We also have LDS. We have some Baptists and we have Pentecostals and we have most uh, evangelical denominations remain here. They're denominational. And then out here, I'm going to use a phrase that comes in scripture that's prophetic to this age. And this is the, these are the people who have God in them. And no man can tell them, know the Lord, because they will already know me. You don't need a pastor up here telling you to do it. If you're part of this and you're finding this situation with campus too slow for you and not right, leave. Because this is where you want to be if you want to really experience God in your life. You want to be fed and you want to go. And you want to do in the world for those who don't know him yet. I would suggest that over here we have consummate materialism. Here we have kind of a mix of a material church and a spiritual church. And here we have the ultimate experience of spiritual religion, right? And then here we have law 
And here we have a mix of law and love. You know, there's always that justification. And here you have pure love. I would suggest that over here, we have the ultimate form of walking by faith. The ultimate form of saying, I trust God and I'm going to look to him and him alone for my salvation. Trust that it has happened. Now serve him and love others completely as Christ told me to. This is the ultimate walk of faith. Here, you're teetering. You're saying, yeah, well, yeah. I love it when, when men do that. Yeah, well, no. Here is the ultimate. This is the least form of faith because you're relying on your own righteousness, your own works, your own doing. And in the middle is that ground that you might call the um, lukewarm. The lukewarm. I don't know what that's going to mean after this life, but the fruit of the Spirit, love for all, part of his heavenly kingdom now. All things are spiritual. He writes his laws upon our minds and our hearts. It's proven by the biblical model. It's proven by the personal model through this new heuristic. Okay, questions, comments? And please, someone tell me if it was completely insane. Besides Danny. <laughs> oh, yeah, they. A lot to cover. Sean, that was amazing that you put it all together like that for us to understand. And I feel like you need to do something like produce a small booklet or something that something online so people can, so people can refer to it. Um, you're like a voice in the wilderness. I, I can't see how when people come to the realization that religion isn't working for them and they want to leave that institution. They don't know how to transition into this rebirth experience and this liberty in Christ living in Him. They're not getting it at the churches. They're not being taught that. No. Uh, if you're not listening to this broadcast, then you're not getting it. What do you do with those people? What do you say about those people who can't, when they come out, they see they're tired of religion, they know they can't do it anymore, they see all the problems that it provides and they just decide to give up on God altogether, become agnostic, or a lot of them become atheists, which are, is amazing to me. But I know. You know, all I can say is that's kind of been the way it has always been, Danny. I mean, God has not stepped in and, and, and mandated. I think seekers find Him. I think people who are seeking will find. And people who wave the white flag and give up, they may not. I don't think God loves them any less. It's just unfortunate for their life here. But I, I, I don't think you can systematize something so the masses will embrace it unless God fully ordains it and he doesn't seem to ordain it. I just don't know how they get it unless they see it presented like this. They don't. And, and for a number of reasons, in, in the New Testament model that we stay in as Christians, the pastors want people to stay in church. Mm. They, they want them to stay in because that's their livelihood. That's what they're building. Mm. So you're not going to try to teach them something to leave. So they're not going to get it in church. In our little microscopic way, like I'm having a few atheists on our show later on this month, and I'm having an English professor, PhD, who's become a, left Mormonism, and I want to try to propose, like I did with John DeLynn, hey, how about this model where it's all taken care of? Can you embrace Christ through that? Where it's done. You are saved. Can you? And everyone has been reached by Christ's shed blood. Can you embrace that model and see if the atheists still says no so but it's just going to be everybody sharing brother
No answer. Never been one, I don't think. And if you get, if you think it is the answer, you become an institution, right? Hi, Sean. This is Ray. Hello, Ray. You know, from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve was created, the Lord gave us free agency. And yet he gave us all these rules. He gave us all the laws in the Old Testament. And then Christ comes along and he gives us a few rules. Uh, two, I know what you're going to say. Two. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. But if you go back, let's, let's take the instance of baptism. Uh, Christ was baptized and he said he did it to fulfill all righteousness and then you come along to the end of Matthew and he commissioned his apostles in the New Testament to go out and convert and proselyte and to baptize all people uh, Baptism has been a real problem and question for me when you look at the New Testament. Now you're saying, well, the New Testament has passed, and yet um, in Matthews, he was commanded to baptize people. Is that a spiritual baptism that he's talking about? Okay, first of all, physical baptism. Okay, Bray. I'm a, let me go to the the example. Christ came in the first age of the Old Testament, so his people were the Jews. Water ablution was the way that he was telling them be baptized. When he said, "I'm being baptized to fulfill all righteousness," it was all righteousness relative to this age. It had nothing to do with the New Testament era or beyond. It had to do with him as a Jew, being the promised Messiah, being identified by John the Baptist as the promised Messiah, submitting to that so John could identify him as the one when the Spirit fell. That is fulfilling all righteousness. Okay, now, when he commissioned his apostles, that was after his resurrection, and he told them to go out and baptize people and convert them. Who? In the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Two things. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in most manuscripts appears to be an addition to a zealous Trinitarian. And because we know that, because when the apostles baptized, following Jesus' rule, did they ever baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Never. They never did it. I so know, Jesus... Paul, Paul, Paul certainly didn't. Yeah. So Jesus told them, go out and baptize. You say all people. He didn't say all people. Remember, he said, go to the house of Israel. The, the, the gospel had not been given to all people. The gospel was given to all people when Cornelius, in Acts chapter 10, Paul, uh, Peter had the right to share with Cornelius. But until then, Jesus' commission to those apostles was baptize Jews. That's the context of the baptism. Well, in, in Matthews, I think he uses the term all nations. He's taught, when nations is translated in the Greek, the, the Greek word for nations is the same word for tribes. 
and he's talking about the 12 tribes. They did, he did not tell them go and baptize everybody because they, the, those apostles did not believe anyone could receive the gospel until well after Peter baptized Cornelius' family, which is in Acts chapter 10. So what he said there, when you're interpreting it to be all nations, that was not applicable to us. That was to his apostles, and it was to all tribes. Go out into Judea and baptize all tribes. Where it says world there, it's not the whole world, as in, it's an oikomenia, which is the whole land. Go into the whole land and baptize all the Jews, the tribes. That's, what, that's a better interpretation of it. Okay. Thank you. You're seeking. It's great. You're probing. That's what it's about. Excellent. All right. The front row. Hi, Larry. This is Jonathan. I mean, thank you, Larry. Hi, Sean. This is Jonathan. Uh, so I just wanted to add to what uh, Ray was talking about in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 to 40. Uh, starting at 37, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Yeah. So I figure most people don't have the hardest time. I mean, some have a hard time loving God. But most people fail on the second commandment, which is loving thy neighbor as thyself. And I wanted to add for people watching online to go to 1 John chapter 4, towards the end of it. It uh, He tells people in uh, 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Hmm. So he kind of reiterates it towards the end of the New Testament. Yeah. And I figure you mentioned there's no rules at campus, which I've been attending for several years now, and uh, have loved the way that I've seen you grow, Sean, and I really appreciate the time Grow or digress, one of the two. You're definitely growing. And uh, the fruit that you're producing here is just tremendous. And I'm oh, praise so God, grateful brother. to be a part of this ministry. Thanks, Jonathan. You notice, uh, to Ray uh, and then Mallory, um, we started with one commandment in Adam and Eve. Don't eat of the tree. Then he shows what it's like to have a people and put them under 316 commandments according to the Jews. The New Testament, there's 3,015 commandments in the New Testament. People today, we read it and we think we're following the New Testament not even close it's love and that's why that new testament is not the model we stay in we move out let jesus have fulfilled it now let's move into the place where we are absolutely free to love god like jonathan said and love each other hey it's mallory so you said that there's seven points of the individual that go along with this model and yeah. i got the first five okay i didn't really so the first is is it just the individual you're created? Uh, created, yeah, created. first one. Your created. creation. Yeah. The second one is we're fallen. Second one, fall, yep. Then we become institutionalized. Right. And then we find Jesus. Right. And then we get into the New Testament. Yep. Where what we're that? teetering in, in both, uh, both, you know, following laws and yep. spirituality. And then I get lost. Then here we have our own second coming. We have our real come to Jesus meeting. This is when we realize Jesus is our Lord and Savior. This is the end of all this. This is the end of this former covenant that has been in us from our parents and from religion. This is when we realize he has done it all. So 
this is the end of the age here in this model. End of the age. So it's the end of all the stuff I've taught you as a kid. Yeah. And all the other stuff. It's when you realize, wow, it really is. He's done it. He's the king. I am his. He loves everybody. I'm moving into this now. And what's that? Isn't that That's seven? Seven. Yeah, that's seven. And, and so what's seven called? Age of the Spirit. I don't have a name for it. It's no. just the age of the spirit. It's the, the new aeon. Yeah. The, the new, new aeon. aeon. Yeah. Thank you. I love it. Thanks, baby. <coughs> what, Jonathan? The everlasting, the everlasting covenant. I love that. All right, you guys, you ready? Out of here. Oh, Maria, <laughs> my wife is speaking. Blew my mind. Wait, let's see what she has to say because if she mentions the argument we had last night. <laughs> no, it blew my mind. I mean, I know all this, but when you just lay it out like that, you see the, the it just makes sense. You're able to track it and follow. And I'm most convicted by the stinking sock rule because that would be me. I would be the one bedazzling my socks and pointing no, you at you wouldn't. because no, you weren't kid, doing it. You'd yes, be the one not you, wearing You know socks. me. Yeah, well, that's true, too. <laughs> but you know me. And people don't realize the reality of that rule because when he was young, he went to, it was a, you know, the trend was to wear the top siders with no socks. And he went to a state dance and they pulled up his pants and he didn't have socks on. He was sent home. Yeah. So the, the so sock thing that as comes my, from a very deep, yeah. Deeply within my heart. But it was, it blew my mind. Thank you. Ready to pray? All right, let's get out of here. Lord, we are so grateful for the, just the scratching the surface of the mysteries and wonders that are provided through your word. We do love it. We study it. We read it personally and get together to talk about it. But we don't want to become lawyers and legalists. We want to be lovers, uh, lovers with agape love. And that, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, uh, rolling over on truth, Lord. We share the truth, but in love with all people. And we share the good news, the great news with them. That you love this world, this cosmos, so much you gave your only human son to come and have victory over it. So, yeah, we live in dark ages and the darkness prevails, Satan or not. We have a darkness about our human spirit. We want our will. We want our ways. And so religion steps in, Lord, and it, and, it, and it provides uh, reminders for us that are helpful. But we know you want us to have liberty. And we know you want us to love you freely and to choose to love you and to love all people by your spirit. And so we gather together to study these things so we can be equipped to practice our faith as Christians, being Christ to our neighbors. So when they mow over our hedge, or when they cut us off, or when they give us a mean look, or when our mother says something mean, or, or our children are turning out badly, that we remember love overcomes and love brings us through. And that as Christians, we are known by our love, the first two commandments as uh, Jonathan pointed out. So. In that vein, Lord, let us leave in this state and in other places around, there are lots of forms of dogmatic religion. Let us love those people, not argue with them. And those people who don't know you, like Danny mentioned, who are atheists or agnostic or lost, let them know the great news, the great news. Did you know that Jesus saved you? Not that he will, but that he has. And that your work has been done 
and we can benefit by having a relationship with you here and now rather than just later. We love you. We pray for Liz. We pray for Lisa. We pray for our sister Diana. We pray for all these uh, people who are suffering with uh, disease and cancer. We pray for people who have lost uh, loved ones. We pray for, pray for Thane's family as he was taken a few weeks ago. And, uh, and everybody else who is suffering loneliness and, and sorrow. And help them with their jobs. Help them to make money in this world and to recognize your hand in their prosperity and help us to overcome addiction 